As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicines they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicines issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said that talking is the best medicine. So in this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who have dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that affect uh, that impact millions of people around the world. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by the Global Health Impact Project. And welcome everyone to another episode of Talk is the Best Medicine. My name is Spencer Baudet. And my name is Ryan Waltz. And today we're happy to be speaking with Dr. Elsaline Kingma, who is the Peter Sowerby Professor in Philosophy and Medicine at King's College London. From 2016, she's the principal investigator for a five-year, 1.2 million euro starting grant from the European Research Council, entitled Better Understanding the Metaphysics of Pregnancy. Dr. Kingma has research interests in philosophy of medicine, philosophy of biology, metaphysics, and applied ethics. She has published on these topics in philosophy journals, medical journals, and the popular press, and offers research-based advice to policymakers, professional organizations, and other groups involved in the care of pregnant women. Dr. Kingma, thank you so much for coming to talk with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's so great to talk to you. And um, today you'll be talking about the concept of health. Um, but before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in your philosophical career and um, how this concept of health kind of became an interest of you? Yeah, sure. So I actually started out as a medical student, uh, which in, in Europe is an undergraduate degree. Um, and really all I wanted to do was to do a one-year master's uh, in, a, in a different kind of approach to medicine. So I did an MPhil in history and philosophy of science at the University of uh, Cambridge, fully intended to go back, complete my uh, clinical training and become a doctor. Um, except I, I loved the philosophy so much, I stuck around for a PhD and then stuck around in philosophy. And um, so I never became uh, a medical doctor. Um, <laughs> And I have to say, I felt quite guilty during the pandemic. You know, I, I was briefly caught by this thing of sh should I should I finish my training and go back and um, actually help people? Um, but so the concepts of health and disease was actually the topic of my PhD dissertation. I'm um, obviously having just come out of medicine into philosophy. It seemed an, an obvious area um, uh, to look at. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, I also kind of have that tie with um doing my PhD research with uh, medical diseases and infectious disease. Uh, totally understand where you're coming from with that. And that's really great. So why don't we go ahead and have you um, start your talk then? Yes, thank you very much. So in the talk, I'm going to focus on a question really that was put to me, which is what is the role of values in health measurements? 
um, such as the DALI employed in the Global Burden of Disease Study. So you've no doubt covered this already as part of your podcast, but the Global Burden of Disease Study is um, a rather large study that attempts to map what the burden is globally of different diseases and thereby inform which diseases we should try to investigate, tackle and treat when we want to most usefully um, make the world a better place in terms of providing access uh, to medicines and lifting the global burden of disease. And for that, of course, we have to have measurements that can adequately measure the burden of disease uh, in a way that we can compare in different countries and across different kinds of diseases, right? Think mental health versus issues with toes versus issues with hearts, um, how much of a burden these diseases place on people. So there's a discussion about what the role of values in those health measurements should be. Should we ask people about health and disease or should we ask people about how they value health and disease? But there is a debate about the concepts of health itself, whether that um, has values in it or not. And it is from that perspective that I looked at this topic. So set the question, which we will return to, set the question about measuring the global burden disease of disease aside for a moment and the question about to measure health aside for a moment and just think about the concepts of health and disease themselves. Are these value-laden concepts? Now, there's a long-standing debate and preoccupation about this question, with some people quite vehemently arguing that health and disease are value-free concepts, that what these things are about is just biological function. And we can say, or so the argument goes, without uh, appealing to values, what uh, a normally functioning or a healthy eye is in a human or in an animal. Um, and we can say what the normal function is of a leg or a heart. And so we can also say, without appealing to values, but just appealing to biology, when an eye or a heart or a finger is dysfunctional. And on the other hand, uh, we have people who vehemently argue that concepts of health and disease is not about biological function, is not about what is found in the natural world, but it is about us projecting our values onto the natural world. So primarily, these are discussions, right? To call something healthy or to call it a disease is to say something about whether or not we value or disvalue a particular condition. As I said, this is quite a long-standing debate and really the attraction in it of naturalism, of the view that these are biological value-free concepts is that, or so the thought goes, it would be kind of an easy way out of difficult discussions. So if you have a difficult social discussion, when this debate started, that was often about homosexuality, but we might think now of certain kinds of disabilities, um, it's kind of an easy way out to say, we don't have to talk here about social values or what we think right is wrong. No, no, we can just appeal to biological dysfunction. And that seems a kind of an easy way, supposedly, of settling what otherwise might be really complicated moral questions, such as who uh, should have access to medical treatment. So that has always been the attraction of naturalism, right? Of the view that health and disease are just these uh, concepts that can be settled without appeal to values in terms of biological dysfunction. So I've written quite a lot about who might be right in this debate and why. Um, in doing so, I tend to reject normativism. I tend to reject this view that says, well, 
Health and disease is really just about what we value and disvalue. And there's lots of reasons to reject it, but broadly, every account of health and disease that explicitly constructs it in terms of value is just going to include too much, right? There are too many things that we disvalue that aren't diseases, right? Um, bad marriages, tyrants, storms, floods, there are all sorts of things uh, that we disvalue that aren't diseases. And these kind of accounts try to do clever things to make sure that they only pick out diseases, but they end up not really succeeding. Because it is or does seem true that when we talk about disease rather than a vice uh, or a natural disaster or something else, we, you know, we really try to pick out a particular subset of things. And what is that subset? What's well, the kind of stuff that we think is a biological dysfunction as opposed to, say, a social ill or an external disaster? So these normativist accounts, I think, don't really succeed. It's just not true that when we give an account of what disease and health are, we really give an account in terms of what we value and what we don't value. But that doesn't mean that it's true that when we define health and disease in terms of biological function and dysfunction, that we've successfully latched on to what a naturalist thinks is a completely value-free account of health and disease. Because when it comes to sorting the natural world into what we think are natural categories, there is still quite a big role for values. Because what happens when we try and figure out what are normal biological functions uh, and dysfunctions, we still need to make certain judgments on any account of function. We still need to, for example, think, well, what is our um, comparison group of reference class by which we determine when something is normal or not, right? So when we, for example, want to figure out whether um, menstruating or lactating, or, or indeed ejaculating sperm, because I don't like to just make examples that involve women here, and um, we want to figure out whether these are normal biological functions or not, we need to pick a right comparison class, right? We need to pick a comparison class that is more narrow than the species as a whole, right? We need to, for menstruation, look at women in a particular age category, not men. When we look at lactation, we need to pick women at a particular stage of the reproductive cycle, not at other times, right? Where lactation can be a sign of a particular brain tumor. And when we need, when we pick uh, ejaculating um, men, we also need to pick them under particular, very particular situational circumstances because otherwise it's just a bit weird. Um, so we need to make these judgments. But of course, at the same time, when we um, are looking at heart attacks, we don't want to make a comparison group, um, you know, men with atherosclerosis. So already there, we need to make certain judgments. And I've spent quite some time arguing that you can't make those judgments in a completely value-free way, which accords with the more general literature, that when we make judgments about a natural world, when we do science, there are some values coming into the science. Now, how does that reflect back on um, the question which we started with about the role of values in disease measurements? Well, one thing I'll go through very quickly is I think that there's a good reason for us pitching our concepts of health and disease and leaving them where they are now, which is where, it's, as I just argued, 
these are kind of believed to be scientific concepts. Some values come into them, but they come in at very limited ways, right? It's not about conditions we value or disvalue, but there are conditions that we consider to be biological dysfunction, where at the level of those judgments, some values come in. And why is that useful? Well, if we explicitly think in terms of things we value and disvalue, we tend to differ quite a lot on our values. In fact, we differ so much on our values, on what we think an account of the good life is, on what we think well-being is, that it's not appropriate for governments, especially globally, to stake a stance on what is a good way to lead your life. What is well-being? Right? What should you do? What is the stuff you value? Quite reasonably, and there's a lot of political philosophy on this, right, we should make a step back from those kind of judgments. And if we had an account of health that was really about the things we'd value, we'd end up disagreeing about what we value and therefore disagreeing about what health is to such a degree that we would lose all support for, say, um, a joint approach to tackling health, funding a joint approach to tackling health. Um, and indeed, we wouldn't be able to do any consistent measurements on it at all, let alone cross-culturally. But where health is at the level where it is now, because it is at the level of biological dysfunction, the kind of values that we end up putting into those measurements are kind of so shared that we tend to agree on them, right? People tend to agree on the value of having healthy legs in a way that they don't agree on what kind of things you might want to do with your life, with your legs to have a good life, which, you know, for some might involve playing football and for others, it might be cycling and for others, their legs aren't really that important to them at all. So it seems that that level of health where it is pitched now is also kind of politically useful and pitches it at the right level for health to function in the context, uh, in a social context in which we are supportive of it, and also where we can measure it cross-culturally. And so there, I think, the role of values in health measurements gets precisely right what it wants to pick. So ultimately, this is supportive broadly of the kind of health measurements attempts and the measurements used for them. Um, that we that for example the global burden of disease uses because these kind of measurements don't ask people to rank the value of health right they don't say well how important do you think for you in the context of your life and well-being particular kind of conditions is on which you expect people to differ right because if you're a pianist your fingers are very important and um, if you're a, um, a runner probably they're less um, but rather we ask people to rank health. And when you ask people to rank the health of fingers and the health of legs, they don't think about the, their particular account of well-being, but they think about the broadly shared values we have that go into determining what a functional body is. And so for that reason, I think that when we ask people to uh, rank health and thereby when we measure health, what we measure is ultimately a concept that has certain values built into them. It is a concept that keeps the role of those values at that kind of widely shared level. That means that our health measurements are relatively valid, or at least as valid as they can be. Of course, there's a lot to be disputed about that. And also that keeps those judgments at the level where we can 
um, widely support the kind of social efforts that they feed into and that we make to, you know, as was mentioned, um, make sure that everybody in this world has access to medicine and access to health and that we fund the kind of right causes that do their best to lift the burden of disease globally. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this whole series discussing health because I think it's interesting to find out that, as you point out, it's a concept that we all use, uh, but it, it gets kind of complicated kind of quickly uh, when we start to get into these questions. So we're going to ask you some questions and anyone in our audience should feel free uh, to type out their own questions and we'll ask them for you. But to begin, one of the uh, controversies uh, we have uh, concerning distribution of healthcare resources, especially recently, is uh, how to distribute the COVID vaccine. And of course, at some point, I think we should hope that it's not a problem because there's enough for everyone to go around. But especially uh, here in the US, some of the issues that uh, are controversial, who should get it along the lines of age, um, should we distribute to densely populated cities or more rural, rural areas. And so I'm curious about how we can approach this if part of the concept of health requires a uh, general idea of what is valuable about health and for whom. So when I think about health, I probably don't have in mind um, an elderly person. I probably have in mind someone closer to my own age. So I wonder if your account is able to make this kind of difference for how different people in these kind of different reference classes might value health. I'm not sure that uh, a general concept of health would would account for that. So just how would we how would we begin to like justify a, a distribution system to someone of a minority population in whatever uh, uh, capacity? I mean, in general, with the last year, and you know, I have I have um, for various reasons, you know, not engaged in detail with any of like the all the kind of philosophical questions that have fallen out of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, in part because I just haven't had the time, and other people have, but. Again, it would be insincere to think that something direct flowed from my account. I think what, in general, these problems in the coronavirus pandemic have shown is that, you know, these are fiendishly complicated questions where anybody in a decision-making chair, and I'm glad that I'm not in those chairs, has to, yeah, has to weigh lots and lots and lots of relevant considerations, right? So, I mean, with these kind of vaccine questions, but I'm just going to say the obvious here, you know, um, yes, it matters that uh, some people, older people, more vulnerable people, various ilk, are more vulnerable to the disease and likely to suffer from more of it than others. That gives you a reason to give some kind of priority. But it also matters that vaccines, you know, are really a public health measure. They're not about, they're not, I mean, they're partially about protecting the individual, but mainly about, you know, protecting the community of a whole by slowing the spread of the virus. And that means you have a reason to distribute them in dense, more densely populated areas where they um, uh, will mo have more of an effect, right? So there's more of an effect in densely populated areas, there's more of an effect in more vulnerable populations. 
that gives you reasons for effect, but then you have concerns about fairness as well, you know, as I'm sure you've covered. Um, but there's other tricky things as well. So, the, the, uh, you know, we've also learned in the pandemic, like I said, right, health is not the only good. Um, freedom of movement, um, being able to visit and hug ill, dying, struggling family members, mental health concerns. There are lots of different kinds of vulnerability. And all of those matter, right? The health concerns matter, but the emotional concerns matter, the economic concerns matter. All of those are goods. And so ideally in the chair of the decision making maker, you know, you would value the health goods and so you would seek where you would do most good in health terms and you know appropriately balance that with fairness and also consider these other kinds of goods, the economic goods, the emotional goods. That is an incredibly difficult trade-off to make you know the only mistakes i see are the places where people think it's simple that there's one or two concerns but you know none of that follows directly out of my <laughs> research right. um yeah these are obviously whenever you're talking about extremes like a you know once in a century pandemic then you know uh it's a little bit a little bit hard to answer <laughs> um but kind of going back a little bit more, uh, hopefully closer to your research, but also uh, kind of tying in with COVID. Um, I want to talk about, maybe this is a term that um, me and the like medical research, which is like invisible diseases, which is, or invisible disabilities. Um, so, you know, obviously if you talk to the public, they can visibly see someone in a wheelchair and they know that that's, you know, limiting their movement or you know something like that but you know i also want to see what your opinion is on how to include i guess like let's take for example someone with immune deficiency needing to move around in the city during a pandemic because um, you're talking about freedom of movement and all that and so you know i i don't think a lot of the public really understand how disabling um, having immune immune disorders that that can be yes that's very interesting and I think well I mean one one way in which um, it is interesting in the context of my research the the chapter I was discussing is that I sort of you know I make this point where I say well I think when people try and rank particular health conditions, which they're asked to do on these uh, health measurements instruments, which are then used to inform distributive justice questions, questions about addressing the global burden of disease as effectively as possible, right? I said, well, what we ask them to do is we ask them to rank health. So we ask them to not think about, you know, how would I, in my highly particular situation, value this particular condition, you know, given that I'm a pianist or given that I'm a philosopher and I, I don't mind sitting in a chair all day, as long as my brain is working, but in general terms, is we kind of have asked people to both think about, you know, general values, but also about kind of a general sense of life requirements, right? A, a sense of what we've called ordinary or wildly, widely shared environments. And of course, one thing about a corona pandemic is that it sort of radically changes what we think of as the normal, but also what we think of as the normal environment. So that yes, something like an immunodeficiency, which ordinarily might not be very debilitating in this particular context, suddenly becomes a huge 
uh, hugely vulnerable and debilitating conditions. And there were a huge number of people who will not normally think of themselves as particularly vulnerable, who are suddenly particularly vulnerable in this context. And of course, that applies to the health conditions, but it also applies to other kinds of conditions in life, right? There are other kinds of vulnerabilities where people suddenly find themselves to be vulnerable in particular domains that they never realized, in part because it was a vulnerability that never showed up, vulnerability to isolation or vulnerability to lack of social um, context or economic, new economic vulnerabilities. So in a way that means that, you know, in this pandemic, you can't perhaps really use some of your normal evaluations of health conditions because sudden conditions have become much worse effectively or have become better, right? I mean, the condition itself is not worse, but the value it has, the impairment it creates has become much worse. Whereas other kinds of conditions that normally cause impairments um, have kind of ceased to be so, right? The huge numbers of individuals for whom the move to an entire online world suddenly has eradicated a kind of inequality they faced um, because everyone has stuck at home communicating via technology. Um, so certain requirements aren't placed on people anymore that previously they might have struggled with. Yeah, so what you've referenced in that question was how some external factors in a person's life can affect uh, how much uh, dysfunction or disvalue that your dysfunctions uh, cause you. But when it comes to, um, for instance, raising awareness about some diseases to instill this kind of concept in the public understanding of health that maybe it also includes this other component, especially when it comes to mental conditions. I wonder if we could talk just a little bit about what it is that awareness and awareness and outreach campaigns are doing. Uh, are they arguing that we should redefine our concept of health to include uh, these potentially controversial issues. Uh, you mentioned um, fag, uh, fatigue syndrome in your essay as one of the kind of more controversial ones, I think. Or are they arguing that this was a health issue, it always was a health issue, and we were mistaken? Um, how, can we, how can we kind of talk about that, given your, your concept of health? I mean, I think it's tricky, because I think generally, right, awareness campaigns are often, um, they're about change, and they tend to be I mean, at least a particular kind of awareness campaign often tends to be about something that is underrepresented, right, insufficiently mm -hmm. visible, and doesn't attempt to make it visible. And I think often in doing that, and in doing that kind of campaigning, the, the demands made and theoretical framework underpinning it might not be to my philosophical standards. Um, so I think, for example, that sometimes the um, some of the disability awareness campaigns in claiming that, you know, all we have is different abilities can overshoot slightly. But at the same time, I think we should be entirely forgiving of that, right? We be kind of overly unkind to slam down some of these awareness campaigns on the grounds that, you know, actively, technically speaking, you know, some of the things they say might go too far, might not be true, because, you know, they're in a position of the underdog. <laughs> they're like, yeah. they're like legitimately trying to create awareness, you know, awareness about things. And that, that claim is often very legitimate that we should pay a lot more attention to 
neurodiversity, to the way that our environments create or at least significantly contribute and make worse um, certain kinds of disabilities or the impairments that people suffer as a result of having certain kinds of different abilities. Those are all very legitimate claims in almost all cases. And so claims about whether or not, strictly speaking, we do or should not completely declassify them as diseases might not quite match up with my theoretical framework, but I don't think that should go, that should be used to kind of slam down the legitimate, often, you know, the legitimate yeah. statement that there's a lack of awareness, a lack of visibility, and that more accommodation could be made. Yeah. Um, if I could ask just a quick follow-up on that then. So what of you rejected normativism because it has the boundaries are too unclear and it's it's uh, includes too much. Um, so now I just have a question. Since you are including uh, judgments in defining like reference classes for health and that sort of thing, how fluid is your uh, um, theory of health in terms of how the concept of health can change over time? When I first read it, I was thinking it had some ability to respond to changes in values and such. But now I'm wondering if it's a little more rigid than that. No, I think it's got some, it's got some flexibility. So, you know, um, I mean, arguably the way we have changed our views about homosexuality, I think for the better, are an example of such a change where, you know, um, in the context of, um, for example, the, the biostatistical view of health and disease defined by Bose, if you take, you know, say um, the male or the female population as a whole, then you know a a lack of um, sexual attraction to the other sex is not a great way to advance your reproduction, and that's deemed to be a kind of simple biological marker. Um, and I think we've effectively just moved to the view where we say, well, hey, look, there's just different groups of people, right? There's people with mm -hmm. blue eyes, and there's people with brown eyes, and there's people with this kind of sexual attraction, and there are people with other kinds of sexual attractions. Um, and they, you know, we kind of treat them as as their own normal group. So I think there are some, and 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 maybe sometimes, you know, people sometimes even give certain kinds of justifications for, you know, just as we have a, a story about why, you know, these kind of abnormal people like me with blue eyes exist in this remote, dark corner, <laughs> sunless corner of the world, warmed by a Gulf Stream. Why, why blue eyes and a fair skin arose there? Um, uh, you know, as I said again, rather abnormally, maybe there's a story and sometimes people's story of why we have these other variations, kind of normal variations. So there's some scope, but it's got to be scope that is still couched in terms of what normal function is. It's not a simple story about what we like or dislike. And so I think it resists a whole bunch of the more objections that we would put in sort of straight out normativism, which becomes entirely subject to what a society in various ways um, might value or disvalue really without any reference to underlying functions. So, you know, those run to, to all the problems of, well, you know, all sorts of mutilations previous and present that were done in the name of um, valuing particular body types or looks that I think, you know, you legitimately, I mean, you know, you can, Historically, people will pick bound feet, but of course, you know, contemporaneously, we could talk about all sorts of um, uh, other mutilations, breast adjustments that I think are just straightforwardly damaged to bodies 
it doesn't really matter what we what we value. And of course, you know, on the upside, things that were disvalued that are just varieties of of the normal. Um, right. When particularly we think about racial categories or something. And so I course, think yeah. there is a kind of you know solidless. That's why you'd want to stick with a perceived naturalist account, was realizing that like all science, it's not completely value free. And you've left open the conversation for a, a moral conversation about how to uh, manage the other concerns too. So that makes sense. Thank you. This is um, maybe a little bit of a variation of uh, what we previously asked, but um, I just kind of maybe want a further uh, clarification of this, which is that, um, you know, when we're thinking about, and, and, and mostly this is coming from, from what you were saying, not from your article, but so when you're thinking about health itself, um, you know, you're, you're making a clear distinction between health and well-being, but I do think that my health is influenced by my well-being and vice versa. And so I'm wondering if there's, if you can see any kind of crossover or constraints of health and well-being together, because, you know, and one of the examples I can think of this is, you know, a lot of medical professionals and um, cardiologists are kind of, um, you know, advising about stress levels and overworking. Um, you know, in California, there's, you know, working with cardiologists, we have people that will work out too much and it will become, you know, a little bit uh, detrimental on their heart because they're overworking. So what is kind of your opinion about like, you know, if there's any sort of constraints or, you know, as far as having a good frame of mind and like kind of maybe more of this meditation stuff, and is there any sort of thing we can do to uh, kind of have these two together? Well, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I'm not denying that um, health and well-being are related, right? That there's a connection between them. I mean, I think I think it's quite obvious, like you said, that there is all sorts of connections. But I do think we should not conflate them, right? So if you think about the, I mean, I went through all of this quite quickly in the in 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 my talk, but when you think of the WHO definition, where you know health is complete mental, physical, social well-being, and you know, kind of everything becomes health. Right. And so, I mean, it becomes you become unable to say, well, you know, this week I, you know, I mean, I mean, yes, this was stressful, wasn't very good for my health, but, you know, it was important to me. It was good for my well-being because I was supporting a friend or I was doing something for my children. Or I was working on a project I really care. It becomes impossible to sacrifice your health for other aspects of well-being in your life. And I think we clearly all the time decide to do things that are imperfect for our health for other very good reasons. Um, so I think they should be kept distinct as concept, but it doesn't mean that they're not related in all sorts of ways, right? So um, like I said, health is kind of instrumentally valuable in that often, um, you know, well-being in general often requires a certain amount of health and reduction in health globally tends to reduce a reduction in well-being. And yes, on the other hand, you know, we are complex creatures. I mean, generally speaking, our well-being um, will have an influence on our health, our social, emotional, mental, etc. Well-being globally will have a uh, an effect on our health. But you know, um, just as much. So yes, on the one hand, you might say, well, yes, stress is not good for your um, for your health. In the example you gave with cardiologists. At the same time, you know, I mean, 
very often you might think that your well-being for your well-being you you might well want to do things that are complicated or stressful um that might negatively affect your health but for other good reasons i think you want to keep those two apart you would you would really lose something if you if you threw them together um, mm -hmm. well so i guess um like one one of the interesting things that you're talking about um and i think you argued this more in your article is is you know the influence of politics on kind of the definitions of health or well-being and how that can be you know how, how we need the public we we need to evaluate what the public's values are um but i guess one of my other questions is is that you know i i think some of these you know throughout time you can essentially you know have objects in well-being kind of being grouped more into health as time goes on and so at what level though like say a medical professional should we start listening to the medical professional i guess my question really is is that you know, how much of this should be driven by public opinion, which doesn't have much experience in treating patients versus the opinions of the medical doctors that are treating patients say, you know, it'd be really, really helpful if we could have this, you know, particular treatment that's in well-being now be in health. Um, um, I think I would need some kind of, um, examples to think through this very clearly but you know i think in general like i said i think the concepts should be distinct right are distinct and we should remain distinct but it doesn't mean they're not relevant and also you know medicine doesn't just deal with health and ill health it deals with causes right and just as much as um you know public health officials medics might say you know, to give a classic example, we need to drain the swamp because the swamp, right, breeds mosquitoes and the mosquitoes give us malaria. That doesn't mean that, like, somehow the concept of health now includes swamp drainage or mosquitoes, mm -hmm. right? It's just that that is um, a, a way of addressing a cause of disease. And so doctors may also say we need to have safer cars, right? I mean, and so on and so on. And so you know, we need to not be, I think you need to be careful when we discuss things like, you know, stress levels or too much online working or, you know, um, badly designed cities uh, without sidewalks or uh, what they call obesogenic environments, right? Environments with too much junk food, too little access to exercise, et cetera, et cetera. These things are all relevant to our health. They may be causes of ill health. And um, that's all completely legitimate stuff for us to think about in the context of addressing, addressing, uh, improving health and addressing the burden of disease. But it doesn't mean that somehow they, you know, are conflated into um, what health and disease are. They're causes of ill health rather than diseases themselves. And um, yeah, that's that's a that's a really great definition of that. Um, thank you. So uh, one example, you asked for an example, and one, one of them that I'm thinking of is my understanding is that the um, Global Burden uh, Disease uh, Project, the survey, one of the things it asked, for example, was to rate 
the uh, disability of addiction to marijuana uh, as composed to other things. And I think this is uh, one of the criticisms of that study raised by uh, another uh, health philosopher, Daniel Hausman, uh, that we tend to rate, we the public who are responding to, to that survey, tend to rate the disvalue of marijuana addiction very highly, uh, especially and even compared to things like uh, deafness, which you might think obviously outweigh the uh, addiction to marijuana, whatever that might be. So is there any way to kind of rule out those, I would think, um, obviously uh, health misjudgments that might happen in public surveys uh, if they're having a misconception about health and the function within the body? Yeah, I mean, great question. And I think the answer to that is really tricky. And I think it also shows that, you know, I mean, the, none of this is perfect, right? So I'm certainly not advocating mm -hmm. that these things are, 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 are perfect. When I said that these measurements broadly got the role of values right, um, you know, that's sort of at a fairly theoretical level, I think really they do, as I outlined. Um, I mean, I was surprised to look at it and decide that I think they do. But yeah, there are difficulties, right? And one clear difficulty for rating something like the addiction of marijuana, but it's just more difficult for that kind of judgment and from judgments of like, you know, being in a wheelchair or, or not being able to see or things like that, is that, you know, with those other things, we can easily imagine the the broad level of just contexts and environments and human endeavors in which, you know, these things would impair us, would stop us from doing a number of things. When it comes to something like marijuana addiction, you know, that's going to hugely depend on what, you know, I mean, I'm, um, I'm Dutch, marijuana is, is, is legal here. Um, what is the what do you think is the normal social you know social cultural legal environment in which you think this this operates um i mean i'm surprised that people rank it <laughs> maybe that's just reflect i'm surprised that people rank it so high but of course if you think about marijuana means you know you're going to end up in a, you know you're going to lead a life in criminality you spend huge of money you lose your, you know, all the things that, that wouldn't need to happen um so there is, it, you know, I think it's really difficult to figure out what what the, you know, like I said, the nice thing about asking people to rate health and disease rather than their value is that it sort of makes them stretch away from the particular context in which you live to what we think is a kind of a general shared set of human context and values. I think when it comes to something like marijuana addiction, that this is particularly difficult to do um, for people, as well as, you know, I mean, there's just certain conditions for which you probably better of knowing what they're like or think for better knowing what they're like. Um, I don't quite know how you would, you know, argue against it. And well, I mean, maybe in certain conditions like that, where you worry that the judgment of people is going to be much more about what, um, you know, what is marijuana addiction going to be like, you know, given a particular criminalized, uh, like social circumstance, maybe you should add to the question, you know, disregarding this, the kind of consequences of a criminalized structure. But of course, that itself is tricky because lots of people in the world think that there should be such a criminalized structure. So, um, 
you know, right. yeah, some real, some some genuine, some, some genuine trickiness um, uh, remains. But but you know, you would want to get away with them for the same reason that you would never, you know. I mean, luckily we don't ask this question. But if you ask somebody whether they think that you know having a, a particular skin color is uh, how they rate that on health concerns. Well, you know, I, I think uh, I think having to having a risk of skin cancer, as you know, as I do, and, and not being <laughs> getting burnt quite often when it's sunny is a kind of a, a health risk. That seems to me an appropriate reaction to question about skin color. If you ask this question in, you know, 200 years ago in a context of the slavery system, you wouldn't want somebody to say, well, obvi obviously, uh, you know, having dark skin is a disease because it marks you out for like disastrous social treatment. So, you know, and mostly they're asking about health. We do get away from those social things, I think, and that's correct. Yeah. But maybe marijuana addiction is a prime one where you, you, you're not really succeeding. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation, but I think we have to wind down. So if I could ask just uh, one last uh, question for you. Asking the public's appraisal using their conception of health as, as a key component in determining the global burden of disease. And I guess the last question I have is in answering the question of, you know, what is the global burden of disease for these various conditions, etc. To what extent is this an, just an empirical question about how people respond to the survey versus an empirical question about uh, say, uh, facts of the disease on the ground and that we use the survey to kind of get information about it. Um, is it strictly an empirical question when we ask these, these questions about disease? Uh, just go out and do the surveys and, and that will give us the answer or is there there's something else guiding it? Well, I mean, it's a terrible question to ask a philosopher because philosopher will uh, say, yeah. all you ever measure in a survey is people's responses to the question, right? So, I mean, that's 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 all you measure, and anything beyond that is going to require, you know, assumptions that the questions that people um, respond to sufficiently map on to the underlying construct that you actually want to measure, which in this case is the global burden of disease. And then the question is, you know, how do you best design your survey that that it it does that job? To the best of its ability and you know and it's not going to be perfect and we've already uncovered it in many more ways in which these things are imperfect um uh but i think and i guess that's the you know that by asking them to rank health rather than the value of health they're doing a, a better job than than if you ask them to rank the value of health but you know that doesn't mean they're perfect and of course yes when you ask people anything via survey, their lay understandings of the concepts, the meaning of language, the way they map onto the world is always going to play a role. And therefore that will always bring in distortions, uncertainties, certain biases, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's why I'm not a survey mm. maker. <laughs> right. Hard, you know, and, and of course in making these kind of instruments, that's that's something that you know is, is is a constant a constant issue for concern and also as you know people's understanding on the ground changes you will find you know one presumes over time if for example there's a big awareness campaign about because that's one of the things people tend to underestimate right how bad mental health um basically is um 
So, you know, if you had a massive awareness campaign about how bad mental health is, and you would find that people in these comparative rankings start to shift in, you know, preferring more physical impairments compared to mental. That, you know, that's not surprising that you would find that. Um, uh, so, you, you, you know, you, you should expect to find some shifts there, I think. Mm -hmm. It's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, we've really appreciated having you uh, here to talk with us today. And really enjoyed uh, reading your writing. Um, and so thank you so much for coming to be with us today on Talk is the Best Medicine. Yeah, thank you. And yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Okay. Well, listeners can find a link to the paper we discussed today, as well as Professor Kingma's larger body of work in the description. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of our content or explore the exciting work being done by our parent organization, the Global Health Impact Project, you can check out our website at global-health-impact.org new in the description. The Global Health Impact Project hopes to support efforts like this podcast to provide information about and advocate for access to essential medicines. Also, follow the Global Health Impact Project social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we want to give a special thanks to the World Health Organization for providing funding through the Global Health Justice and Equitable Vaccine Allocation Grant. Until next time, don't forget, talk is the best medicine. <laughs>